Well, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. Still the only podcast, still the only podcast that covers horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm one half your mad hosts. I'm the monocle. I brought a Donato. How how you doing, Donato? Good. I like how you emphasized twice that we are the only podcast doing this. Like, like it wasn't enough the first time. Like, no, it had to be said again. Like, we are the only ones with this podcast concept. So if you're here, listen, you're I'm not a lawyer, but I think I, I, my understanding of the law is that if you just repeat something enough, it becomes yours. That's I think finders keepers is sort of like 90 percent of the law. I, I don't know. We probably have we might have a lawyer on this episode where we can find out if that's actually factually correct. Um, are you fully recovered from a weekend of shenanigans in Los Angeles? Are we are we going to talk about that maybe in a minute? The Critics Choice was wonderful. We had a good time. Mm-hmm. You've yeah, been it, a critic's choicer for all of like four seconds. So good on you. I Yeah, it, it was quite funny that I got accepted to the critic's choice literally like five days before I was going as a guest to the actual award. So I didn't get to vote this year, but I did get to go as an actual member, even though I was still a plus one. It was just a very interesting experience. But like, yeah, no, I am uh, happily a critic's choice member now. So thank you for bringing that up, Mr. Monaghan. And yeah, I mean, like, of we course. can talk, talk about we can talk about what happened uh, if we bring our guests in. And at least one of them came with me. Well, let's pull back the curtain a little bit on the on the Critics Choice Awards and other things. But in order to do that, Donato, you gotta do you gotta do the introductions because you do them so darn good. I mean, I do them okay, and then edit them better. But like, yeah, that's the magic of podcasting. In any case, returning for the second time, so this is her third episode. Is Amelia Emberwing, the streaming editor at IGN, who is laughing for some reason. Our next guest needs no introduction. Yeah. Long pause. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the magic of editing. So that's Amelia. Welcome back. I Hi. don't know. You ain't. Why. You aren't editing that now. No, no. no. I uh, don't know why we keep inviting her back, but I'm leaving all of this in here. Yeah, absolutely do that. And we're actually we don't usually do this either. This is something else we don't normally do. But we have two guests on today's episode because it is a film that. Both of them equally have championed, and both of them should be here to talk about. So returning for the first time, second episode, Lee Munson, Lad About Town Esquire. Is that how, is that how you want to be known now? That, yep, yep. You got you to gotta put all the words down. It's longer than my actual name. You won't fit it into a Twitter username length. It's just unwieldy and awful. Perfect. I think for the rest of this evening, I'm going to randomly stop and think about how you did returning for the second time, third episode. Like that's going to be, it's going to trip me up for like the next 12 hours, the way that you introduce both of our guests. But setting that aside, welcome, welcome, welcome. So excited to have you both on the show. So excited to do uh, a multi-guest episode. I feel like this is, this is fun. We do this every now and then. We've had one of those, I think. Two of those. I don't remember how many episodes we have. We did two. We, we did two of them. We did two lot two live episodes at festivals. Uh, I believe gotcha. one, one was North Bend and one was Real Love. And the first one we had uh, Switchblade Sisters on, and the second one we had the Witching Hour on. So we did two of these uh, multi episodes. But yeah, we'll see how this works in podcast format because those were both uh, YouTube shows, and I think it's a little easier doing it like seeing people. But uh, I don't know. I think it's just gonna be chaos. And what, what else? Well, I. I know from from history, I know from from personal pandemic history that and and from former Zoom drinking calls that we've had that if you put Lee and Amelia in the same room, you're going to have a pretty fun time. So I trust you guys to carry your weight is what I'm saying. And also to talk. Yeah. And the episode like now would be 
just carry the episode <laughs> so we don't have to do any work. That is exactly gonna, what we Yeah, that's do. really I, preferred. You want me to interrupt either one of you? Like, is that what we're waiting for? Always. <laughs> Always. So, like, that's part of the problem because, like, Matt and I are recording right next to each other. So I know we're one line of dialogue. And so, like, I'm so very, like, I don't want to talk when he's talking. No, not that kind of podcast. Okay. No rules, baby. Baby. No rules, baby. Baby. All right. So we promised we'd talk about Critics' Choice Awards, but let's, because you guys are both returning guests and because our friends can go back and listen to your episodes and kind of hear your personal histories, um, I would recommend you do that, by the way. We'll have the episodes linked in our blog post that both Lee and Amelia previously appeared on. It's the beginning of a new year. Things are opening up. Film festivals are happening. Movies are sort of coming back. And by movies, I mean the Batman. Um, movies are sort of coming back into theaters right now. So I wanted to kind of start this conversation with maybe just a, a check-in in March 2022 about the state of the industry and how both of you as culture writers, as, as people who are tasked with covering all the shit that's going on in the world, how are you feeling about the movies? Great. Uh, it's been a very good year so far. Like we kicked things off with Scream, which I adored. Um, the Batman also adored just having a really good job or a good time, like at the theater, which is nice. Uh, I've mm -hmm. also just forgotten every other movie in existence. Cause I know <laughs> that there were good movies on streaming as well, but uh, the Batman has been my whole identity for two weeks because I write for IGN. So mm -hmm. that. <laughs> yeah. What is I... the, what is the, sorry, Lee, just real quick, Amelia, what is like the, the window for a big release for IGN? Like you said, the Batman's been your, your life for two weeks. How long are you going to be producing content around a temple film like that? So the thing about IGN is that it's so big that sometimes it doesn't really matter. Like, Obviously, the window has largely passed, but if we get a good enough pitch or like if we have a good enough idea mid-year, like we'll roll with it because we're large enough that it'll work. And with the nature of Batman existing ad nauseum for eternity in 87 billion different iterations is whether we publish it immediately or not, like there's still space for that so the short answer to your question is that there is literally never too much batman or spider-man or or long list of other superhero content hmm. lee how's the movie year going for you uh going well uh i've mostly just been keeping up on the new releases and not uh not doing a lot of writing about them lately but i enjoyed scream and the batman as well uh really loved turning red uh, that movie blew me away. Uh, yeah, just a really solid start to the year, uh, all told. Um, I thought Death on the Nile was actually pretty fun. Hmm. Uh, uh, a better Kenneth Branagh movie than Belfast, for what it's worth. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, you know, totally solid. And I'm really looking forward to seeing X this weekend. All you... Uh, South by folks, luckily seeing that first, I hate your guts, uh, but I will see it at my local theater and probably enjoy it just as much. That's awesome. It sounds like everybody's, I mean, everyone's comfortable going back to the theater. Things, at least on the theater front, feel pretty much 
not normal, but like some kind of return to normal for, for the group here? I think return yeah. to normal is like, it's still never going to be normal. And I think that's what I'll keep stressing is like, I feel good now in L.A. because we're still going to theaters that are like a draft house that are maintaining mask mandates and you know, we're wearing a mask the whole time, except if I'm eating that delicious, sweet Enigma popcorn with oh churro God, bites so and cinnamon Jesus sugar. Christ. But it was like, so good. It was though. so, good. It's so well, good. And also the got ham sandwich. The chicken sandwich was baller. It was so good. It was their best special menu that I like think Draft House has ever had. A chicken cordon bleu sandwich, essentially. Yeah. But in any case, getting to the real answer that I was trying to get to. Um, I, <laughs> no, I, do... I want to talk about the Enigma popcorn. <laughs> No, I do feel like it'll never be normal. And as long as I am in a space where I feel comfortable um, and right now for me, that does include going to smaller theaters. And if it's a bigger theater, as long as I can like kind of distance somewhat, if it's like a multiplex, uh, that's like a big AMC or something. That's what it comes down to. And screenings have been pretty good, too, where they've still been keeping a good distancing law for like, again, inside baseball stuff. Critics go to screenings. We get invited and like they've been keeping good numbers there. So like I felt way more comfortable going to these screenings than I have been doing public. But like, you know, we did public to see the Batman because we had to. And I, it wasn't super uncomfortable for me. So like right now with where numbers are, with where everything is, I am comfortable. Like that could change at any time. That could still change at any time mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to say the most uncomfortable I've been in the theater was when I went to go see uh, Spider-Man Nowhere, No Way Home. That was a very packed theater full of people who were not masking up in December. Uh, that was that was pretty uncomfortable. Uh, and like I did not get concessions at that show because I knew that I was going to be packed in there with a, like a sardine uh, with folks. So like not taking off my mask for shit. Uh, but, you know, other than that, like normally I've got plenty of space uh, uh whenever i go to a, a showing and even even something like uh we saw a scream on a thursday night uh and like that that theater was like pretty full but there was still plenty of room and you know we masked up the whole time and it was a good um, like i'm pretty comfortable with it honestly like i i abuse my amc a list like like no other and uh see as much as i can so yeah, and I remember I mean, when I lived in New York, it was all about finding like that 11 a.m. Sunday screening or like mm-hmm. even at, in the times where you would go to the movie theater and you'd be seated and you wouldn't ever worry about who was next to you. Like I just we I've always gravitated towards those smaller showings because you have a little bit more room to move around. You're not worried. I've had people talk through my movies before. Um, you know, you don't really miss that if you don't have that. So I feel like people that spend their lives going to the movies have have already kind of establish their routine which is go wherever the crowds aren't Mm -hmm. it's funny because uh i've been going to see a lot of indian cinema lately just because it's been playing here and uh what's great is that it's either me and no one else or like one indian family that i'm crashing their private screening (laughs) uh and it's like it's it's kind of just the perfect movie going environment even if the movie is not great or not something I understand remotely because I'm outside of that cultural zeitgeist. 
Yeah, you were sharing a story not that long ago about how you got um, you met someone at one of those screenings and they kind of spent the movie giving you like a two and a half hour film, giving you the entire history and context of the, the Indian film industry while you were watching this particular film. Yeah, that guy was uh, that guy was something else. Well, he and he did like a double take when he came into the theater because he uh, it was uh, the row only had two seats in it because it was like parallel to the projection booth. So uh, he came up and he had, his reserve seat was right next to mine. Uh, and he did like a double take. It's like, is, is there supposed to be a white person in here? Like, am, am I in the right theater? And he, he sat down, like tried to give me this whole history lesson. And I'm like, buddy, this isn't my first rodeo. Like, it's fine. Like I'm, I'm here to enjoy this too. Uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm a tourist, but I'm not an, a totally uninformed tourist. Like you belong so, there. You you, you yeah. didn't just wander in going like, oh, this mm-hmm. is a movie theater. I wonder mm-hmm. what movie is playing. Yeah. Like this isn't Spider-Man. They messed yeah. up the theater. <laughs> just wait for like 30 minutes before yelling. This isn't Batman and storming out. <laughs> the longest long look. game to play. The long con to just ruin. <laughs> if we spend enough time describing the Batman as an art house uh, superhero movie, then people will probably wait. Be like, I heard it was weird. When do we... When does it, do we see him ever? When is the Batman actually in the Batman? <laughs> I mean, the Batman is the closest we probably have been to an art house Batman, though. <laughs> we don't need to classify superhero movies as different kinds of movies anymore than we need to classify horror as different kinds of horror. I like to think of it as an elevated superhero. Shut film. the there fuck up, Monogal. We got there. We got there. <laughs> uh, of course, my real opinion on the Batman would make you even angrier. As we I, know, so I, like not it's, it's not, not even... as mad as your opinion about Jethica will. So, <clears throat> no, that um, it's a real good movie. For those who um, don't know who are listening to this podcast, Jethica played South by Southwest a few days ago. Monogal yes, liked it. Amelia, I did. did not like it. I really liked it. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like there's a fair amount of hegemony in the Donato Emberwing household. So like when Donato's like, boy, did not like it. I'm like, I feel like I'm not going to say you speak for each other, but I get a sense that like there's I can get waves of vibes that if one of you felt really strongly about a movie, odds are the other one is in that orbit. Maybe we disagree on movies so often. Yeah, actually, that's He true. was so proud to show me neighbors and I almost beat the hell out of him by the time the credits rolled. Mm. <laughs> well, we're going to try neighbors, too. The sorority movie next time, written by two dudes, like one of whom is Seth Rogen. I hate children and I hate fraternities unless they're getting stabbed. And this guy was like, you're going to find this movie so fucking funny. All right. To be fair, I was also drunk. It was rough, fam. It was rough. As the resident attorney, because I was drunk is a valid defense. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, All right. That's good to know. (laughs) Which um, in all matters, in, in, in doesn't matter the situation. Well, okay. Since you brought up, since you brought up Jessica, um, whichever one of you did, I choose not to remember that conversation. <laughs> and because this is ostensibly a horror uh, podcast, although this is not necessarily going to be our most horror heavy episode, um, which is, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, I want to, I want to ask a little bit about what you've watched so far in the year in the horror genre. And if there's anything that's really kind of stood out, because we've had a couple of, you know, we're, we're at South by, which means we're about two, three higher profile festivals into the year so far. Um, and I feel like even between festival content and content, sorry, I work in marketing between festival films and um, some of the stuff that's been released on VOD and in theaters, it's shaping up to be a really interesting year in horror. 
So since we're sort of giving our 2022 preview mid-March, um, I want to see how you guys are feeling about the, the horror genre in, in this year and, and what's on the horizon, what you've already watched. Good. It's It's been like, it's been a great year so far. Like we kicked things off with Scream, which was amazing. I have my letterbox open because obviously I've forgotten 97 things. Mm-hmm. Um, Fresh was great on Hulu. Um, mm-hmm. I I actually liked Something in the Dirt more than Matt did, I think. Um, like we both came out positive on it, but I really enjoyed Something in the Dirt. Um, it was just like the exact kind of existential pandemic horror that I wanted for some reason, because like existentialism usually doesn't work for me and you know we love Benson and Moorhead but their films are sometimes hit or miss for me so I was mm-hmm. really surprised by something in the dirt um what was the other oh I liked Sissy a lot from South by uh like just played really really dug Sissy and was purchased by Shudder so that yeah. will be on Shudder we can tell you that right now whenever it does hit but uh you can look for Sissy on Shudder as well as one of my favorites from South by Southwest at least in you know, it, it plays in my vibes 100%. Deadstream is a YouTuber live streaming horror haunted house experience. And yes, the main character is borderline irredeemable. He is the Logan Paul, Jake Paul, everything about this person sucks. But seeing them in the haunted house and seeing them trying to like react to their commenters as there's literally a ghost outside the door and all these things like it played right into my hand as like a horror comedy lover. And I actually like, you know, I, I bring up Evil Dead a lot uh, with that movie in that review because like it does feel like the production that like, you know, got Evil Dead known as a cult classic. Like it's just a scrappy to do with like, you know, a husband and wife just made it during the pandemic with a small crew and like they just did everything themselves and they committed to practical on all their effects. And yeah, they don't look like perfect, but go back and watch like the original Evil Dead and it's like Harry House and like fucking claymation and shit like they just went out and made the movie they wanted to make. And that passion comes through. So like, I'm, I really hope Deadstream does catch on as being one of those like really fun Halloween cult classics. Yeah. Also picked mm. up by Shudder. Also Shudder. And uh, No Exit was also really solid. Right. Also on Hulu. So Hulu is having mm-hmm. a good year for horror as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. No Exit and Fresh are both great. Um, I'm, I pulled up Shudder because that's uh, most of what I've seen. Uh, yeah. I I liked uh, I liked the seed quite a bit. I thought the seed was a good time. Uh, like not the not the most uh, uh, high minded of films, I guess I would call it. But it's definitely like a solid time watching uh, watching a, a house full of uh, young women uh, destroy each other, basically with the weird alien baby monster. Uh, so that was a good time. Uh, I also really liked Hellbender. Uh, I thought Hellbender was a was a pretty cool mom daughter movie. Like Adam's family, like they're they are a cool uh, group of filmmakers. Uh, so I'm always happy to see what they're putting out. Um, but yeah, yeah. Other than that, you know, theatrically, Scream is kind of the thing that that uh, overtakes everything else so far mm-hmm. in the year. Uh, I did see The Cursed, and that one didn't really do it for me, but I'm trying to think if there were any it's other close. big... Cursed, the Cursed felt like a movie if that that there was a there was a good movie in there. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like yes. that's, usually you can't it, see it, and you could mm-hmm. see it. There were moments where it was so evident, and it just didn't come together. And they it, had such it, a baller name that they dropped, which was fine because yeah, they were never deserving of the name <laughs> that they had. Mm-hmm. Like, The Cursed fits the movie that got released. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's a cursed film. 
and it's it, the problem with the plot of that movie is that it's just got too much shit on it. Like it's 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 burdened down with too much stuff. Uh, it it's the Carl Havoc of plots. Uh, <laughs> it's a well, shout out. Ask... Shout out to Carl <laughs> Havoc there. Let me ask y'all um, not to veer into a more contentious point of view, but as somebody who has recently spent a long weekend in Marfa. I know the other high-profile franchise film that has gotten a lot of buzz so far in the year, good and bad, is the new Texas Chainsaw. And I'm curious because I ain't going to read any all shit until I've had a chance to see it, which probably isn't going to be for like 10 more years because I don't, I don't need that in my life right now. I'm curious if, you know, if somebody's listening to this podcast and hasn't seen it, which I feel like the Venn diagram of that is just two circles about as far away as they could be. What are, what are you in for? Is that is is that a movie that we're going to remember from 2022? Or is that no. something that should fall by the wayside? No. No, nobody's going to fucking remember this movie. It's like the Unanimous. only thing, the only thing this movie has going for it is it has very good kills. Congratulations. Hundreds of mm. other movies have remarkable kills. It sucks. I hate it. Well, it's, yeah. it's so poorly written. It is so poorly written to a point that you cannot ignore. And I, I, I know the internet discourse on this one was, well, why do you care about the plot in a slasher movie? Uh, slasher movies are never well written. They're never they never have a good script. And it's like, number one, the entire screen franchise is right there. I mean, outside just of three, like just, just well, I'm just talking about the franchise. Like if you're going to talk about bad, like slashers are never well written. Well, I don't know. Scream alone has something to say about that. But like the other part of it is I can let a bad story go when it's harmless. And I can let a bad story go when like, all right, it's going to just do something boilerplate and simple just to get to good kills like that's okay. I've liked movies like that. What makes Texas Chainsaw so bad and why it's so poorly written is because they try to have these conversations that it requires so much skill and craftsmanship to get around. Like they start conversations about generational divides, gun violence, racism, all these things that are good conversations to have, but this movie doesn't actually want to explore any of it. It just wants to bring these things up for shock value and just leave them there. And like, that's why it's dangerous because like Fede Alvarez said in interviews like, oh, well, I think it's important to like explore both sides of the conversation. And it's like, cool, you can explore both sides of the conversation, but you have to come out of it like still taking a side. Like you can't just say gun violence, like good, bad. I don't know. Like that's not a fucking conversation. That's not exploitation. That's not anything more than just bringing it up for shock value and like doing something dangerous with writing. I, like, I'm sorry, it's bad. It's very bad. The devil has enough advocates. We don't actually need to explore both sides of certain things like gun violence or rape or any of those like, hey, there's actually a clear black and white line here. There aren't many situations where that's true, but where they are, we don't we don't have to both sides ism it. We don't. Okay, but what side do you fall on for previously unestablished self-driving cars? <laughs> That is, see, you know, again, if you're going to bring up a conversation, you got to fucking have a conversation here. Although I do believe they do engage autopilot in the beginning of the film. I, they I, do. I think I do have to remember that. Okay. They do. Okay. I, I'll, apparently I was not paying close enough attention. How to, to, yeah. to this the, ninth to Texas the Chainsaw, Texas. <laughs> to the ninth Texas Chainsaw <laughs> movie that chooses to like, again retcon so many things because this is just a follow-up to the original and we're just gonna oh, it, erase it, it's so it desperately wants to be halloween 2018 yeah so desperately no it desperately wants to spit in the face of halloween 2018 mm. well, i mean 
it, yes. it, it I can't say why because it's a spoiler. Yeah. It does. It, it, that is, I I immediately thought of Rob Zombie's Halloween. I don't know why. When you said Halloween 2018, I'm like, oh no, mm. like I think it's as mean as that one. But like, no, yes. David Gordon Green's, yes. This wants to be like, it wants to be it, it but also be the antithesis of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just throwing it's not good at either. I'm just I'm there's I'm just trying to get you guys all as worked up as I can about the various movies it's, that you do or don't like. So... This makes for good podcast content. Aren't there more contemporary discourse conversations to have? This is like a month ago. No, hey, we we don't all work for IGN. Sometimes we are we specialize at Certified Forgotten. We specialize in slow moving discourse for films that have been released a year, five years, ten years ago. That's like our whole thing, man. We don't care if it's contemporary. We turn down contemporary pitches every day. We got to pitch on the last duel. Gonna turn that down. Saw that. Yeah, that okay. Yeah, if you are listening to this, please don't pitch us on the last duel. Just read our website. Please just read our website and give us good pitches. Like that's all we ask for. A horror pitch. Like it's just a horror pitch, and you're coming to us with the last duel. That will get you blacklisted on websites so quickly. Word of advice to any writers out there. Know who you're pitching. Know what to pitch them. Like, it, it's that simple. Everyone will be very nice to you if you just follow the rules that are listed. Uh, if you just throw something at us that, like, has nothing to do with our website or our brand or, like, shows that you did any research. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I like this episode. I'm just pushing Donato's buttons. All right. Well, Emily before we go, <laughs> before we talk about Blood of Wolves, which is today's uh, the movie of today, I actually want to start a little bit with a bit of expectation setting for folks that are going to be listening to this podcast episode. So both Lee and Amelia, I would like you guys to talk a little bit about your experience with this genre, because we'll talk about it a little bit organically in there too. But, you know, um, Japanese gangster cinema, Yakuza films, like the way post Hong Kong wave of like action, crime thriller kind of things. I, you know, I want to know, is this an aberration for you? The movie we're about to talk about, is this something where like, I don't watch a lot of these movies and I really love it. Or is this something that both of you like kind of eat, drink and sleep? Like this is, these kind of crime movies are your thing. Because I think that once we start talking about the film, that'll help with folks being like, all right, this is in their wheelhouse or this is not. Curious what you got, if this is the type of movie you guys are watching a lot, if if this is a great example of of an unknown piece or, or if it's a different thing. I wasn't told there was going to be a test. It's not a test, man. I just I'm curious because there's like there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff, especially when it comes to like um, Japanese and Southeastern Asian films. I feel like every year there's a couple that bubble up. Right. Yeah. And like that everybody might watch because, well, you know, uh, Wellgo USA picks it up. I was about to say Wells Fargo picks it up. Noted film distributor Wells Fargo. But I, I don't you know, I don't know if if it's one of those things where like I know people that like they watch a lot of that stuff. That's what they watch. And I know people that like they'll watch kind of the stuff that bubbles which is not a knock. This is probably maybe one of two Japanese thrillers I've seen from like the last four years, um, yeah. just because the way that it's been the last four years. But, I, you know, since this is not truly speaking a horror film, usually we, we talk about our guests and we're like, yeah, horror, I'm in it. I know it. This is what I'm talking about. I want to kind of do a little bit of like where, you know, how much of this type of genre cinema are you into? Yeah. I wouldn't say that I am like as well versed as I am in horror, but we were talking uh before we started the movie because i i do not care about american gangster films one iota i don't they do nothing for me even the most remarkable in history just do not speak to me in any capacity but yakuza films and and that sort of area of cinema like 
that always really works for me. And, you know, we were kind of discussing why. Uh, and Matt had mentioned something that really hits specifically in the blood of wolves, which is how over the top it is. Like it doesn't, it doesn't take itself as seriously as American gangster films because they're just incapable of laughing at themselves. And there are still very serious stakes in films like this, but it's, it's also not afraid to laugh at itself when appropriate. I don't mm. think that actually answered your question. So I'm going to pass it no, on it to does. me. Yeah. So my background um, is not necessarily specifically in Yakuza films, even though I have uh, dabbled here and there. Um, I have a relatively strong back. I have a relatively strong anime background uh, just because I uh, was an obsessive uh, when I was a teenager, kind of fell off that a little bit, but I still watch uh, some here and there. Uh, but uh, I, I tend to gravitate more these days towards uh, samurai films. Uh, big uh, Lone Wolf and Cub fan, big Lady Snowblood fan, uh, that sort of thing. And I feel like Yakuza films tend to be kind of an evolution of that sort of violent honor code sort of uh, aesthetic that I like that when it comes to, to samurai fiction. Uh, and so Blood of Wolves really fits into that sort of mindset uh, for me, but I also very wholeheartedly agree with what Amelia was saying in that uh, it's a very violent and goofy, uh, but also very serious minded about the the issues it's addressing. So I uh, that's why I appreciate this specific movie, even if I'm not necessarily a Yakuza film diehard. Hmm. And I think my goal in asking both of you that was just as a level setting, how accessible is this movie going to be? Um, if this is not a type of movie that you watch a lot of, if you know you kind of stick to, to horror and you, you aren't familiar a lot with Japanese customs, Japanese customs on film, the way that they portray their own history, you know, do you need to have a lot of that cultural specificity for this? And I think kind of hearing both of your answers, I think, I think this is a movie that anybody's going to be able to, to dive into and, and, and come out of it ready to hear the conversation that we're about to have. Yeah. This mm -hmm. might be jumping the shark a little bit. And so maybe I'll just say a little tiny bit about it and then we yeah. can dive more into it once we get to the conversation proper. But in terms of accessibility, like as we're watching, and again, this is partially because Batman has been my life for, well, ever, but also very specifically for the last two weeks. Like I looked at Matt at one point, I was like, there are so many Batman notes in this film. So mm -hmm. many. Uh, so I think in that space alone, like if if you watch like Batman films and you're into Batman, like there, there's there are parts of this that are going to be aggressively for you that transcend any sort of cultural, like roadblocks, I guess. Yeah, because it's about mm -hmm. gangsters and again codes of honor and things of that nature and that you know underworld stuff. So it just translates to that kind of stuff you're familiar with. And I would also add, just like from my experience, I, I how you described before, Monica, like someone who watches the Welgo movies and tries to keep up with like international cinema as much as he can. But like, I definitely don't do enough of it. I feel like it's pretty easy to pick up something like blood of wolves because it translates that gangster vibe. Like you kind of know the story just through like it is Yakuza. It is definitely a different setting for a gangster film, but like 
translating it over to the American version of that and like how it would look and would, you know, kind of feel like it still all has similarities that are easily attainable. And, you know, whether that's watching the outlaws or what, you know, any of these other movies that Wellgo picks up or, you know, not even Wellgo, like I see it at a festival somewhere and I'm like, you know what? I've seen so many American horror films in the last two days. I just need that one Japanese fix to like, you know, give me something different, like throw, throw a Sion Sono movie in there. And like, you know, Sion Sono doing the Yakuza while also doing, a filmmaking satire and smashing mm. them together. It's like, I, I want that. I want those movies that like give a little more, have a little more, more theatrical development and like the performative nature of it. And that turns out to be like Yakuza movies for me. So I, th- I, I don't know, you know, it shutter picked it up for a reason. Uh, and we'll, again, we'll probably talk about that too. Like this we'll is on shutter. Uh, it's not actually thoroughly a horror movie, but shutter was like, I know a good movie when I see one. So like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the only thing that you might not pick up on, because the the opening title uh, does say that it's, I believe it's the the 63rd year of whatever the emperor was at the time. So if you're Japanese, you'll know what year that is. It's 1988. That's, uh, that's maybe the one like big thing that you may not catch right away as a, as an American audience member, but that's about it as far as like ultra specificity culturally uh yeah otherwise i i co-sign what uh, these two said yeah and i think that's that's where we'll leave it before we go i mean we always talk about on the podcast i've I've said before that that i love horror in the same way that i love jazz which is that the melody stays the same everything else changes the artist changes the tempo changes like you know the pieces are always going to be there when you hear a song eight different times but you're going to hear it eight different ways and i think if you've watched the batman or if you've watched geez anything really like any scorsese film from the last 10 years you've got sort of a, a common shared language to be able to dive into this one so without further ado we're going to get soaked in the blood of wolves we'll be right back Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Certified Forgotten. On the show and on the website and on Twitter and basically everywhere else we talk to you, we've hinted a few times that we have a website redesign coming. And I thought we'd spend just a minute, minute on the break, and talk a little bit about what you can expect. What can you expect in the website redesign? Well, it's going to be cleaner and it's going to be more accessible. And we're going to work a little bit more to highlight the Patreon section and every name that appears on our website will not just be an endless scroll now <laughs> we're actually going to do a little a little more interactive element there so we're just very focused right now on just uh, rebranding doing everything we're doing well, not rebranding just put a new coat of paint on everything i guess is the way to say yeah. it and you know donato and i uh, we're 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 writers by trade that's kind of that's what we do uh we're not necessarily web designers and so while we're really proud of all the content that lives on the site all the really good articles that people have submitted We've always felt like we could do a better job um, giving that the home that it deserved. And so we're working with a friend of the show, um, Freddie, who, what is his last name? Carlini. Freddie Carlini. So we're working with friend of the show, Freddie Carlini, and we're, uh, we're actually giving it a professional redesign, like WordPress developer, the whole nine yards. We've drawn inspiration from sites like Fangoria, like Rock Paper Shotgun, uh, like uh, IGN, like Polygon, we kind of have, have looked and seen what websites are doing that we liked, and we're trying to kind of capture that as well. So we hope that we will have something for you in the next month, um, and it'll just make your, your reading experience of Certified Forgotten both on desktop and on mobile just a little bit crisper. 
And also, it's what our uh, writers deserve. The writers that y'all are so generous and you give your money to and make sure that mm -hmm. their articles go on a site that, you know, well, we want to now give them the right site for them to go onto. We want to give them the site that, like, they can click into. And again, it just looks a little cleaner and more professional. And it's not the uh, HTML code that Monocle and I were able to cobble up together. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of make from a blog standpoint. So Mr. Freddy's going to help us with that project. And now that we've seen the wireframes and seen what it's going to look like, we're just waiting for the final product. And on that note, let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back. So this week on the show, we're talking about The Blood of Wolves, which is a Shudder exclusive, certainly on Shudder. It's a Shudder exclusive. All right, good. I got that much right. It is a 2018 Yakuza film. Thank you for correcting my pronunciation earlier, by the way. Um, and it's... I mean, we'll, we'll get, it's, it's two hours long. There are kind of a multi-generational gang war thing going on Two warring clans, a good cop and a bad cop caught in the middle of it. Um, a lot of familiar tropes and some unfamiliar tropes from like gangster films, just sort of writ large. So I want to start as we always do. I'm going to leave it there. We'll, we'll talk about the story as we need to. Um, but I mean, you don't really watch a movie like this because of like, you good cop, bad cop, gangsters. You got it. Uh, Amelia and Lee, you both were all over this one, especially when we opened up our, our review criteria a little bit. This was something that y'all wanted to talk about. Um, what makes this a special movie for both of you? I kind of fell in love with this movie uh, when I saw it at Fantastic Fest in 2018. And it mostly has to do with... Uh, the interplay between the two main characters, uh, Ogami, the bad cop you mentioned, and Hioka, the good cop. Uh, and it's ultimately a story about the lengths someone needs to corrupt themselves in order to work within a corrupt system, but also to keep the uncorrupted safe. Uh, by And it's such an interesting character study, specifically of ogami that it's it's just stuck with me so much since it's come out and it frankly was so frustrating for years not seeing it get a u.s release that uh i've just been banging the drum for it for years uh and when it finally showed up on shutter uh without much fanfare uh like it I, you said it's a Shutter exclusive, but uh, it is exclusively on Shutter. But Shutter does not list it as an exclusive; it's just in their library, which I don't know if that's a, a rights thing or what. But uh, there was there is no fanfare, no advertising, nothing. Uh, and which is finally... I, I should add that's that's uncommon for them. This, we're not talking about Netflix or another streaming mm -hmm. giant where they drop something with no push. Like it's rare for Shutter to have anything of value that they're not curating and talking about. Right. Right. That's why I thought it was so strange. But, you know, so I became the 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 marketing department for this movie uh, <laughs> to my meager followers uh, who still don't hear me shut up about it. Uh, thank you, followers, for clicking the link when I inevitably tweet this out. Uh, so um, but yeah, that's kind of where it sat for me. Yeah, I mean, just sort of going back into the the 
seeing a gangster film that like really worked for me and in in the scope of the batman of it all like you see you see this bad guy who or this bad cop who without context is just like acting the same kind of villain as everybody else and then you've got this high and mighty judgy new cop who doesn't really know anything about anything and just wants to play everything by the books and this gradual realization of like coming to a middle ground and then the loss and the there is so much richness in this silly film and I think that really struck me with the juxtaposition of just like everything going on. And then like Lee said, like we fell in love with this movie at Fantastic Fest. And then, you know, we watch all of our other, most of our other, you know, favorite features get picked up almost immediately. And then we're like, okay, fine. But where's, where's the blood of wolves? Where's this one? Give us this one. Because like even, even a lot of the foreign films that play these festivals get picked up immediately. So like, there's nothing... On the face of things, there's no reason why this movie shouldn't have gotten picked up immediately. Like, it's got mm -hmm. huge entertainment value. It's funny. It's gory. It's got the whole gangster plot. It's got the good cop, the bad cop. It's got the buddy cop aspect in certain sections of it. It's just, there's so much richness in this film that sat on the shelf for, like, two years, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, it didn't It didn't release on Shudder until 2020. Yeah, and I, I still remember um, talking about like how it's this Shutter exclusive, but also not announced as one because I remember it and I pretty much try to review every new Shutter film. It's just, you know, an easy streaming database to keep up with. And I think they do a lot of interesting stuff. So I always want to try their stuff. And I get a press email once a month that shows in red all the new stuff and whatever month it released, whenever it did get released, I remember because like. I see the red title. I see the red title and I'm just scrolling on what hits and like later down there in the regular uh, little section where all the other movies come. It's like Blood of Wolves. And I, I think I turned to Amelia and I was just like, is this that movie you've been talking about forever? Like that's just coming to Shudder. I'm like, when did it get a distribution? And I reached out to Shudder and like they're like, no, yeah, we're, we're the first ones putting this out. But like they gave me a screener and everything. It was just so odd that it wasn't announced as an exclusive. Like it was just such a weird thing to like look at and be like, no one has put this out yet. Why are you not announcing it? And I, I think just like to comment quickly on like the idea that these uh, Yakuza films like actually don't really get that much play in America. I think these are the kind of films that get remade in America, like The Departed coming right after Internal Affairs. It's like we're not going to release Internal Affairs because it's subtitled. And while it's a tremendous movie, sure, it's about things that are overseas and we can just easily Americanize this like. The idea is not that Americans can enjoy something that was created, you know, a Korean film, a Chinese film or a Japanese film. Studios immediately are like, oh, well, we can't like distribute this. We just have to remake it and do our own. Like, I think that's why something like The Raid is so interesting because, you know, Sony Pictures like grabbed it. And while we are getting a remake of it eventually, they made sure the first one came out first. So like they released The Raid and they released it wide and they put it in a bunch of theaters and like they actually supported it. And part of the deal is that they were going to remake it eventually. So, like, I, I just think it's very interesting that these kind of films, uh, the studios don't actually believe they'll do anything stateside. I think there's an mm -hmm. interesting conversation in that as well, whereas, like, the subtitle section of it specifically, like, we all bag on the Oscars. 
And rightfully so. They're exhausting and they deserve to be bagged on endlessly. However, there are people that are still engaging with them and still trust them. And so I think Parasite and South Korean films are a very interesting study in in this space right now because, you know, he's right, you know, Americans see subtitles and we're like, eh, no. But we've seen such a huge explosion of South Korean content since Parasite won the Oscar. Like, we, the Squid Games, uh, what was, there was another series immediately after that I should know because... All My Friends Are Dead or one of the... Uh, all My Friends all Are Dead. Of, all of us. All is of it, us are, all, isn't it all of us are dead that yeah. sounds right yes, yes. something yes. along those lines yes. the netflix show <laughs> but like we're yeah, seeing yeah. we're seeing this specific boom in south korean content and netflix is good with that as well because like we see the lupins of the world and other things like that as well but with south korean feels very 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 specific and i i think part of that has to go to credit to the oscars well, we're talking about the fact that this came out in, in 2022, a little bit of fanfare. Uh, I'm curious how we feel about sort of police films in general and the tropes that come with it. Because we had a reckoning about our entertainment and law enforcement in 2020 that didn't, I mean, Law and Order has been rebooted, right? Like whatever reckoning we had, it's over for the most part. Um, but it did, I feel like, to no fault of the filmmakers, to no fault of the stories they're trying to tell, I feel like my ex- personal expectations for a lot of crime films, especially films about corrupt cops, have shifted. I feel like I need different things for them. I'm not taking the same degree of comfort, which doesn't mean that they're bad or that I'm putting them through some sort of moral ringer and finding them lacking. It's just, it sort of changed my perspective on how I, I view a lot of these films. So, putting it up to our guests first, you know, this came out kind of at the worst time to have a movie about corrupt cops, international or otherwise. We don't want to apply American standards to it, but, you know, it's the, the, the entertainment being consumed here stateside. It would have been part of that. Um, watching it now on the other side of that, d- does it play at all differently? Do you feel like, hey, it's still entertaining, like these good cop, bad cop, and they're going to meet in the middle to what Amelia said. Does Do do we change or do we feel different when we watch these these really super traditional um, and traditional in the sense of like a lot of cinematic tradition in the corrupt cop, the naive cop, and and how they play out on screen. I think well, they're... I kind of want to I, I kind of want to push back against that assessment of the film just a little bit because at its core, like yes, Ogami is a corrupt cop, but he's largely a corrupt cop at in order to act as a stabilizing influence, right? And he's acting as a stabilizing influence where cops that are far more corrupt as him are part of the plate that he, the the balance that he's trying to strike. Uh, and I think what's interesting about this film is that I would not call it a, a pro cop film at all. It's about police. Uh, the police are the characters. Uh, if anything, uh, Hioka's uh, idealism is uh, that being shattered forms the backbone of this film's narrative arc, uh, at least from a character standpoint. So uh, I guess I wouldn't view this as being incongruous with uh, an, uh, a police-critical mindset. Uh, I, in fact, I think it fits with it fairly well. I definitely agree. Um, with with everything that you said. And I also think the cultural aspect of it does play in. Like, we are very aware that 
our Rogers is playing the song of his people and Matt is attached to my head. There we go. Keeping it in. Keeping it in. Uh, <laughs> keep going. It's fine. It's fine. Um, what a good boy. Yeah. Good boy. <laughs> the culture aspect of it is hugely relevant because like we're aware about the cultural implications of our police forces and it might be lack of education, but I'm completely unaware of of the political situation between Japan and its police forces, whether currently or in the 80s. And I do think that where it takes place is a part of the conversation. Well, part of the interesting thing for me that The Blood of Wolves does, and lead to the point that you made, is... It, it is, there's pretty much like a clean divide in half where we watch um, the, the older cop, Ogami, we watch him be sort of the trope of the corrupt cop for about half the film. And then when things sort of go sideways, um, his character d- disappears. And then we're treated to sort of a rediscovery process when Hyoka, who's the younger cop, um, goes through the process of figuring out what Ogami was all about. So there is like, there's an element a diegetic element of revisionism to it where like the film is examining our own expectations and our own portrayal of the characters from the first half, which is conceptually really interesting. But I think it does. If, if there's probably people that are going to watch the first half of this and be like, Oh, this is like everything I've ever seen and turn it off and not get to that second half where it sort of engages critically with everything that we accept is like corrupt cop tropes and like all that kind of stuff in the first, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting way of telling the story but it creates some weird beats where you're basically like, oh, all of this is going to happen as explained to another character. So my opinion of a character is changing almost entirely, not because of anything he's done on screen, because spoiler alert, by the time we start to learn about Ogami, he's effectively dead and, and off camera. Uh, it's really the conversations that Hiyoki is having, Hiyoka is having with other characters about him, which is a different way, I think, than giving the cop himself a redemptive arc. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that uh, just as far as the the narrative of the, of the film is concerned, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense because it's not saying that Ogami is necessarily a good guy in spite of everything he's done. He's got good motivations, but yeah, he's also a selfish prick who takes bribes and beats people up. Like he's he can be both of those things. So, and that's that's what I was leaning into before about the Batman of it all. Like we're very much seeing a Batman and Dick Grayson story where we have this idealistic child who has grown up, like who is now in this scenario with this selfish asshole. And he doesn't understand why this selfish ass. Don't mute me while I'm talking. (laughs) He does. He doesn't understand why this guy is the way that he is. And then, Oh, plot twist. He has, files on everybody exactly like batman he goes to whatever lengths needs to be done sans killing just like batman like it's very it's very specifically like when you watch it from that lens and again it's probably just because i i've been reading batman comics endlessly and just watched the batman and i'm thrilled with it uh but like when you watch it that way it's very much like this is literally just a batman and robin story get out of my face Get out of here. Mm. But like in in the best way, like Batman very specifically says Clark is a good man, but I am not. And that is why I am able to get things done that Clark Kent cannot. And it's just it plays into that good guy, bad guy dynamic. But you're both still trying to ultimately achieve the same goal. 
And I think, too, if we're going to bring up the fact that, you know, like our American viewing of American police procedurals and things of that nature, uh, immediately thinking of like Brooklyn Nine-Nine was like, hey, we're not doing this anymore because there's no way that we can like consciously make the show we want to make and not go against everything that's going on in the world right now. So like that is such an American thing and that is such an American problem, I think, that it's hard to translate that anywhere else. Like you just said, I, I, I'm not as knowledgeable on Chinese or Korean or Japanese police enforcement and like how that works politically right now and how that works in those countries. But like watching the blood of wolves, especially is it's a gang warfare movie. It, it's, it's less, I shouldn't say less about the police in it because as you've all said, like that they are an integral part, but like, it's not about trying to make the police look good. It is very much not about mm. trying to make the police look good. So that's never something I think they had to consciously worry about where, yeah, I, I do agree. Like, you know, any kind of cop, anything like, you know, whether that's American gangster, American uh, crime Lord stuff, if, if it's a police procedural, like it has to be thought of a little differently now, but I, I think this is such a very specific american problem we are dealing with uh you know I, it's just hard to it's hard to put that on anything else and i think something like the blood of yeah. wolves which is very dire and grim and also silly and goofy and also playing itself you know like God, the movie opens by looking at a pig's anus excreting shit i mean like this is not like anything it's uh, the weirdest way to say that sentence. shitting i don't know whatever <laughs> yeah. that's the way i went with it to emphasize how fucking weird this movie is to begin with like it'd be a lot weirder if it was excreting something else that, I'm exactly, just saying. Right? that's true that's true mad so. shout out to whichever second unit director had to like just sit there with the camera for a, a good 10 minutes and try and capture that moment i don't think there's a stock photo library that you get to go to you can't go on getty and basically be like give me the one where the pig is shitting please but like that's how this movie starts and like that's how we get introduced to this world and then a criminal has to eat said shit and like yeah I don't know. Like, I don't immediately get drawn to the same problems I might have continuing mm -hmm. to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine versus digesting some media like this. It is wild to watch any film about gangsters and police from a society that is less gun-centric than us. Because there's like three guns in this movie, and each of them is incredibly important. And mm -hmm. it's just, you know, I you think we talk about the American equivalent, like... How many people would have died in an American movie where it's just somebody goes into a restaurant with an AK-47 and we're like, hey, a gangster scene. I recognize this. And in this, like mm -hmm. the first time somebody fires a gun, they in smash cut to it raining because the storm has broken. Like it's literally a gunshot happened and it is that momentous of an occasion within the narrative of the movie. Well, and I'm not sure if this is true today in Japan, but I do know that uh, at least at the time, uh, guns were forbidden for the the general populace in Japan. They're illegal there. So like, you'll notice that, uh, I don't know if it happens every time a gun is introduced, but at least once uh, it is explicitly said that like, oh, this gun came from the Philippines and that's how I got it. Mm -hmm. Like, like they go out of their way to say like, oh, here's why it makes sense for a gun to be in this scene. So. And, and uh, maybe that's why mm -hmm. we say words like silly uh, in describing a movie like this, because like, uh, to, to the actual culture like it's not silly the fact that like everyone is just fighting using using fists and feet and like no one's dying like you know there are people some people are dying but like again it's monogle brought up not like an american movie where it's just all artillery and it's all gunfire and like there's so much death and bloodshed where like here 
I thinking of the outlaws, which is a hilarious gangster film starring Don Lee and Don Lee just literally karate chops people throughout the entire movie. That's all he has to do. And they're like, that's, that's the action elements, but like it becomes so much more engaging because it's about fight choreography. It's about way more than just gun centric violence. There's actual action elements to these films. There's actual like, you know, foot and fist choreography going on where like, it just is more enjoyable to me. Well, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. like, it's definitely different, but that's not why I call this movie silly. I call this movie silly because it's extra, which is delightful. Extra is a better word. Yes, I agree. Like very, very extra, which is great. I love it. But like the the gun violence of it all and like the, the specific fight choreography or the knife choreography, like that's just different and it makes it Mm -hmm. more exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, Donato, you said earlier, and I think it's time to pay that off, that this is on Shudder for a reason. So let's talk about the reason why this movie is on Shudder. Let's talk about the amount of blood that happens on screen for a movie where, you know, most people are fighting with their fists. Um, Maybe the bloodiest film I've ever seen just from punching. And let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the gore that we find on this film. What makes this the silliness of it or, or the, the extraness of it. Uh, why is the, why is the on-screen violence in this just so wild? That final kill is one of my favorite final kills ever. It's so good. It is so fuck you. You have ruined my life. You have ruined the lives of everybody around me. You're going to die in this hyper specific way. And he looks him in the face and he says, you die this way because mm-hmm. of, who you are and what you've done. Scumfucks die, scumfucks deaths. Yeah. And then just like yeah. the rip of the blade through the side of his face, A plus, aces, incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when uh, when I think about the gore in this movie, I always go back to the pearl scene where, where he's digging the pearls out of the guy's dick. Like that's what I think of as far as like the silliness of this movie. Like, that felt like a very, um, it's a very Shane Black-ish sort of moment uh, in the film where it's just like, I came up with this really silly way that someone could be tortured and we're going to put it on camera and you're going to watch it happen. And it's it's that sort of like gonzo energy that sort of just crops up throughout the film every now and then that uh, makes me really appreciate it. And yeah. It's bloody as hell. I love it. The jilted wife who like mm-hmm. they're trying to get information from their informant and they walk in on her just like dead ass shooting up their house with a rifle. Art. Incredible. And then they're trying yeah. like it never tell a woman to calm down, but especially never tell a woman with a shotgun to calm down. I don't know. Well, and if we're talking <laughs> about the gore and effects going back to that final kill that Amelia is talking about. The film goes through great lengths to like recreate a practical effect that would be in a horror movie. I mean, I think maybe that's what the draw to shutter is. Mono will like answer your question is like that final kill. You see the head mob boss who is about to die and the other head mob boss who is doing the killing. Like he first stabs the blade into his neck and it's still an effect done like with the real actor there. But then it cuts away and it cuts back. And as the knife is like going through this guy's neck and sawing through, it is this honestly hilarious rubber head just flailing around like that is such a nice touch because they go over the top and extra but in a way practical way that like will appease horror fans because like it it also works in action setting like you can deliver Mm -hmm. something outrageous and bloody and killer 
and translate horror into this kind of world because like there are other practical effects in there like um i mean we're in spoiler territory like you know one of the most gruesome scenes is like literally when the partnership between ogami and the rookie ends is because ogami is dead and ogami has done everything he can in his world and he's left the right files in the right hands and he unfortunately meets a very gruesome death and we see a very bloated corpse pulled out of the water and like it is gross it is grim it is dark and like again maybe that's where honestly that's where an american movie might stop like you don't get to see the body there in an american version of that yeah, it's you just a little, see the toes right like you they see would stop the, there the toes or something like mm-hmm. that where again talking about japanese chinese korean uh cinema like they're gonna push that extra length like i saw the devil like we we know what korean cinema can like go to and the lengths it can go to and japanese cinema like i've seen plenty of stuff at fantasia film festival that shows that like they are just as okay with that and japanese extreme cinema too like getting into tokyo gore police like when you see something like the blood of wolves that would play so generically in another country and yet we get all these little nice little horror additives and like just being able to push the darkness a little more like that's that's why this movie works. That's why this movie's on Shutter, and like that's why this movie's so so fucking good. Well, I feel like, like I can't explain why Tokyo Gore Police comes up on this podcast so damn often. Like, if I had a movie that you name drop, I I would say it was Demon Wind. It's not. It's Tokyo Gore. Police. It's influential to me as a horror fan. Like, legitimately, Tokyo Gore Police is a very influential movie to, uh, for me. But Lee, go ahead. Oh um, no, I was just gonna say that to, that seeing the body in the state that it is is so integral to to making that scene work because you you're right there with with Hioka you 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 are in his mind with him like cuz you you grow to love this asshole throughout the whole movie and seeing him look like that uh after kind of hoping that he's not dead uh for a decent stretch of time even though knowing that like yeah, he probably inevitably will be. I mean, shit, watching it again, I was like, there's that part in my brain that's like, God, I hope he's not dead, even though I know he's going to be dead and I'm going to see the bloated, disgusting body. Like, it. I, I think that it's important to to show those sort of elements that, that we think of, it, at least in like an American context, as being horror elements, specifically because they are reflective of, of reality to a certain extent, you know, like we're using, we're using effects that are, that are meant to demonstrate something fantastical in order to reflect something that's like really awful about the reality we live in. Monagle, I have a question for you. Hit me. Did, did this movie break the streak? Did you finally enjoy a movie that I talk about on the podcast? Okay. That's an interesting question. So, Yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. I did not like this movie for the first hour, kind of for the reasons I talked about earlier, which is that it's it plays into expectations before it sub- subverts them. Um, but for a two-hour movie, that's a long time playing into expectations. And I, it was, I, I can isolate the moment where I went from, I don't know if I'm enjoying this, to being like, okay, I kind of get it. It's actually the moment where Hioka is going through Ogami, or sorry, Hioka is going through his journal with Ogami's notes, where Ogami broke into his apartment mm-hmm. and basically like gave him the most like assholeish edit to like his field notes when he's trying to report on Ogami and like all the other stuff about the character and kind of the way that they portrayed him. Like I, I think that does such an interesting job 
that that set the character of Ogami up in my head in a way that it hadn't beforehand. Um, I think that the 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 gangster elements of this, um, the the political infighting, kind of like the ten, the tenuous peace that's kept between the two clans, I think is really interesting. And I think that the movie really gains most of its momentum when it it allows Hyoka to be kind of certain. That doesn't happen for a long time, but I think that's the the last twenty minutes of this movie, 20, like thirty minutes of this movie, um, move along at a really brisk, really fun place. Which is weird. It takes Ogami. I think it takes Ogami dying for the movie to lock in. But the, narratively, that's also the purpose. This character doesn't find his core. Uh, Hyoka mm-hmm. doesn't find his core until he loses his like mentor oppressor character. So, yes, I did end up liking it, but I definitely took a break halfway through. Uh, went downstairs and told my wife, I was like, this movie's so fucking long. Uh, but then it got, but then in the end, in the end it came around and I, and it did come back on me, which is, I like it when a movie does that. I like when a movie, when I've checked out of a film and like, despite my best efforts, it like drags me back in. That's always a fun feeling because you're like, okay, maybe I'm not the grand arbiter of shit. Maybe I don't have mm-hmm. everything figured out. Maybe the movie can actually do more than I think it can. I would be very interested to hear what your take is on the sequel monocle. Cause uh, and I think I'm the only person here who's seen the sequel, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't think it has American distribution yet. Um, the Last of the Wolves, it it, it follows Hyoka uh, after the events of this film. So, and I think that I think that the movie's not as good as this one. Uh, but a big part of that film is dealing with the the gap, the space that Ogami leaves by his death. Like that's a that's a big part of that movie, and I I wonder if that would vibe with you more than uh, like the first hour of this movie did. I think it would, actually. Is that two hours? I'm probably gonna watch it. I, I think it's it I think it's two hours. But again, good luck finding it. <laughs> so. How old is the Black Coat's daughter? How long or how yeah. old? Did I say how old? Uh, how yeah. long? How long? Yeah. Uh, let's say hour 40. Is it even? God, that movie it feels like it's three years long. Get out of here. I, you come, you come on my podcast and, and you, sh- <laughs> you shit on my movie out of left field, man. <laughs> thought we were friends. Here, I'm having First a nice conversation with Lee. I've come onto your podcast twice with movies that I'm hugely excited about that you've hated. So <laughs> to be fair, a really talented director now talks shit about me because of one of them. <laughs> so there, there is that I have a Hollywood enemy forever, which I didn't have before you came on the show. So thank you for you're that. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Tyler, you're not listening to this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> he, re- he literally listened to all most of our episodes on a road trip, Monocle. Like literally. That's what the true. Fuck? Yeah, but he's not doing no road trips. If you are listening to this, please let us know. It's, it's settle a bet between myself and myself. Can you text me, Tyler, if you're listening to this? <laughs> and with your, a picture of you giving Monocle a middle finger, and I'll forward it to him. Uh, that is we have before. that. We have that, but I, I want a new mm. one. It'll, it'll, I'm in the other point, one. To prove a point. Oh. Okay, fine. Well, let me, let's wrap then with the question that we always ask our guests. Um, we have distribution for this. It's on Shutter. It's not a Shutter exclusive, so maybe it'll be elsewhere. Maybe someday... You know, there'll be a, a an American Blu-ray or 4K release of this. Who knows? God, I wish. I don't know how physical media works anymore. It seems to be really arbitrary. Uh, but you know, there is. I feel I feel like one of the downsides to the point that you brought up earlier, Amelia, is that South Korean cinema 
sort of overshadows its neighboring countries where mm -hmm. Hong Kong and Japanese cinema had a moment where like it was the de facto if you wanted good crime films, if you wanted good action and genre and gangster stuff, it was it, Jap it was Hong Kong and Japanese cinema all the way. South Korean cinema has wrestled the spotlight away for a good 20 years now and has kind of maintained that. And I almost feel like it's created a space where movies like this, because they're not fully in this dark place, because they have little flashes of of humor and camp, they're, they're not as tonally consistent as a lot of the South Korean thrillers that we watch. They're, they've almost they're, they're, they get less of the cachet. They get less people talking about them. So, do you think this is a sort of thing where like this movie has its audience now? And I'm gonna start with you, Amelia, and then go to you, Lee. Do you think this this is the audience it has? It's on Shutter. It's going good. Or do you think that there's kind of a moment for Japanese cinema in general to kind of wrestle its way back into the spotlight a little bit? And if you're an actual scholar of Asian cinema and all of that I'm saying is wrong, I'm sorry. I'm just saying kind of how it feels as an audience member, the, the interplay between the two countries. Yeah. I, I say in America, you're, you're definitely right. Like the way Americans consume foreign cinema, that, that feels correct. Um, like we have the, the Shaolin soccer's uh, back in the day where like, it, it felt like that was, that somehow became the mainstream here, which no complaints mm -hmm. because Shaolin soccer is incredible and Kung Fu Hustle is incredible. Mm -hmm. um, the cynic in me knows that the blood of wolves is never going anywhere else and not really getting any other attention. But so far as cinema waves go, like we'll absolutely see Japan and China and other Asian countries come back into the forefront of the conversation as things shift, because the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like, for streaming and television right now, we're, we're having the exact same conversation that we had 20 years ago. It just feels new because they didn't have social media back then. Uh, mm -hmm. So we'll, we'll definitely see things ebb and flow for other countries and South Korean will stop being the hot commodity and then we'll shift to something else and then something else after that. Yeah, I guess what I'll speak to specifically as far as Japanese, uh, media exports is that uh anime takes up so much air in the room as far as uh what japan's cultural exports are that mm -hmm. we don't see a lot of uh live action stuff for, uh that's popular over there make its way over here like yeah we get stuff like shin godzilla but that's like a franchise property right uh that's something that toho wants to have a global reach um and even then it didn't do well enough uh, on a global scale for them to justify doing a sequel. So like it's, it's frustrating that I would love to see more Japanese cinema in a, uh, as, as uh, distributed in the U S. Um, but I think what I, I don't know if, if anime is going to continue to, to grow. I mean, the past 10 years has shown an explosion mm -hmm. uh, as far as its uh, cultural ubiquity. So I don't know if that's going to slow down or what. Uh, but I'm, I do hope that uh, we do get to a point where it's not to the exclusion of all else. And I do think, yeah, this, this movie is going to have a pretty niche audience that is probably just going to be people who come across it and, on, on Shudder. And you know what? So I, I think the vast majority of them are probably going to be like, 
oh, that was a weird thing that was that was on this streaming service that uh, that doesn't quite fit with everything else that's there. But uh, but you know, I hope that they have a good time with it, and uh, you know, there will be dozens of us who it sticks with for uh, a lot longer. So. Not a horror movie, one star. I, there are probably hundreds of those reviews on Shudder right now. Oh, I mean, I was going to say, I think like I all the props to Shudder for putting it on and yeah. giving it a home and doing what it did. Mm-hmm. But like if it was on Netflix or Hulu or just something else where like it would have a little bit of a different audience and bigger audience still, because like still talking about the Shudder numbers, there's still, you know, a, a fraction in comparison to the big streamers. So like even if it's on Netflix, it, it's an easier recommendation uh, versus who might have which application. Um, and I really do think it has to get physical. Like it has to get a physical release at some point, like from one of the boutique whatever I, I even saying like vinegar syndrome like would they even go for a title like this like i'm not sure i don't think lee and i have been the only people talking about yeah. this movie for two three four years yeah <laughs> four years yeah. but to end on a positive note like streaming is what is going to continue to bring these titles to us mm-hmm. because before it was well we have to deal with the tv of it all and the physical media release of it all like the streaming rights are still a whole maze in and of themselves but even though netflix doesn't give them any fanfare like the amount of foreign content on netflix servers is huge there's so much of it and like if you know where to look it's there waiting. Once South by is over, I have four movies I've marked on Netflix that came out in the last like literal month. And it's they're four different international horror films. They dropped without any marketing or anything and just put them on the service. And like those are new releases this year. And like no one's talking about them for what Amelia just said. But like in the same positive note, like they're there. They're on Netflix. They're somewhere where I can just log into and watch. So it's like. Yeah, there is hope that like movies like this will keep getting out to us and keep reaching audiences. Uh, you know, I just wish something like The Blood of Wolves could just reach a little bigger audience. Like, that's the, that's the only thing. And, you know, I feel like over the last five years or so, let's say 10 years, that that horror and horror audiences have become sort of a well-recognized and vocal minority of, of film fandoms that have a lot of pull, both critically and also commercially. But one of the things that I I think has happened over the last few years, again, anecdotally, is that the action community is starting to coalesce a little bit in the same way. There's a couple of really good writers and a couple of really good podcasts that have come up that are dealing specifically with the type of films that The Blood of Wolves would really shine in a catalog and a discussion of that. So it feels weird to say that there that there is a, a coalescence of action because action is ubiquitous. Every nationality, every every distributor has a robust library of this stuff, but it's getting a, a critical, the direct-to-video market, I think, is getting a critical analysis and a critical heft from a ton of different writers in a way that it really hasn't before. And I think on another podcast that's like certified forgotten, but deals only with action movies, which is fine. You can review action movies with 10 or fewer reviews on our band. I don't care about that. Um, they're going to have a really good discussion about this. And I think, I hope they would come to a lot of the same conclusions that we did. Friend of the show, Rob mm-hmm. Hunter. That is literally one of his specialties, uh, Japanese, Chinese, mm-hmm. and Korean action films. And like, whenever he does a list, there's literally like nine and 10 movies I've never even heard of. So like, if you do want a resource right there, like someone like Rob or, you know, who who is in that camp uh, with Rob and uh, Monica mentioned a lot of writers are trying to do that now. Find him. 
seek them out. Like yeah. these are the recommendations you have to seek out. And you know, if you don't seek out the people recommending the movies, you'll never hear about the movies themselves. Mm-hmm. I like that note. That feels like a good note to leave that on. Putting the burden back on our audience to do stuff. And Rob <laughs> Hunter. Good for us. And Rob Hunter. Again, somebody else who comes up way too often in our podcast. All right. That is this episode of Certified Forgotten. I would like to thank both Amelia and Lee for weathering uh, a four-person episode and having some really good conversations. It's really, you know, you're always mm-hmm. a little worried when you bring a couple of guests in the room they're going to talk over. But like, man, you guys have good rapport. Uh, we're definitely going to have to bring you back again for the third, fourth time at some point in the future. Don't make fun of my head, Bob's. Uh, there's there's cameras here. You can't see it, but we're talking like that. <laughs> Lee, I'm going to go left to right on my screen. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, if they want to hear you yelling about Blood of the Wolves into the semi-void, the half of the void that belongs to you and not Amelia, uh, where are some good places for folks to go? Um, I think the best place is probably just on Twitter. Uh, Lee Munson PBF is the Twitter handle. Uh I, I do some writing here and there, but uh, I'm on a pseudo hiatus uh, right now from doing a lot of film writing. So uh, yeah, just uh, if you want some really stupid jokes uh, and uh, some inane ramblings, uh, my, my Twitter feed is a good place to go. The greatest punner of our generation, bar <laughs> none, is how I'd refer to you. Bar punner. Uh, the, the greatest punner. Bar I don't even pun. know if that's a word. Well, if if I if I my podcast, Matt, if I make if I may make a double reference to to today's uh, if I may make a double reference to today's uh, film, uh, my puns are as pearls before swine. Oh no! There it is. You've heard it. (laughs) Okay, you manifested this. You asked for it. You did Technically, I didn't ask for it. I didn't pick this movie. Amelia, if people are interested in learning more about your writing and your video content, where did they go? All of the socials at That Witch Mia. Word. Easy. Nice. It's always good when you consolidate down usernames. Yeah, all of them, everywhere. Same handle. Donato, if people want to check out your extremely wrong opinions on The Cellar, uh, where do they go for you? The cellar is great. Fuck you. My Jesus voice has changed. Christ. I just like to agree once in my uh, life with either of you. Can please the continue. C- the seller is good. It's fine. But anyway, you can find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. Although since I'm part of the Critics Choice now, I will no longer deal with what I define as normies. So don't even bother. I'm not going to interact with you. Anyway, just kidding. No, please follow me. I need the attention. I would like to point out that uh, Donato was in the Critics Choice whatever organization for uh, 10 minutes and unfollowed me on Twitter. Which is just actual true, true story. Actual true story. Actual true story. True story. It was an accident, a hilarious accident that I immediately texted Monocle about because I went to respond to your very nice note congratulating me, and the hover button vanished, and I it just went to unfollow. So when I went to click reply, it just unfollowed you. He's trying to act like it hasn't all gone to his head, but he started this podcast by saying that I went to the Critics' Choice Awards with him, despite the fact that he was my plus one. It's true. Oh, Donata, you've changed so much. Um, Have I? (laughs) If you would like to follow a Matt on Twitter who is not too big for his britches, then you can follow me at Matt Monagle. And I would encourage everyone, please do check out www.certifiedforgotten.com. We've got a really awesome remainder of the month of March planned. We've got some really good articles lined up for April. Uh, we just had a, an excellent round of pitches with some weird, weird stuff. There were a few that Donato and I looked at and we're like, uh, yeah, 
which is the best way I could describe uh, what a good pitch looks like. So please follow uh, certifiedforgotten.com. Check out the other podcasts. Check out Lee and Amelia's previous podcasts and get a flavor for what they think when they've got the spotlight just on them. They also have a Patreon that they refuse to talk about anywhere. Yes, that is true. We, have we, we need. We, us, we should do. Give that. them money. Give us money. Like, don't give us, us money. money. Give our yeah. give our writers money. Yeah, we don't give take the money. money. We give it to somebody else. We take nothing. We have money. not made a dollar. We are thousands of dollars in the hole. I was going to say we've uh, spent so, so much money. Support on support our writers. All right, that's it, Donato. Fuck, man, take us off in some weird way. I don't even. Scum fucks. Oh, thank God. I thought you were going to do a pearl snake.